Good evening. We're going to be in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through Galatians 4 through 7. I'm going to give an introduction, and instead of reading all the way through the text, I'll just read through it in a section at a time as we discuss it. Pray with me first before we begin, please. Father, we're so grateful for the time we can look into your word. We're thankful for the book of Galatians, which you've given to us. Lord, that we might walk in faith. And we might not walk by sight, but we might see Christ through faith. That we might be justified by him and him alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, the book of Galatians was written to a church in Galatia. And it was um, written because Paul had a great concern because of the, the gospel was being distorted. He kind of su- he summarizes it. Um, I think I have some view graphs, right, guys? He summarizes it uh, in chapter 2. Verse 21. You don't have them? Okay. So we don't have them. So you're going to have to listen very, very closely. All right. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. See, not a single Jew or Gentile can be declared righteous by obedience to the law. No one can stand in God's sight and be justified. Yet, justification by works is the inclination of all fallen men. Well, why do you think that is? Well, if I, whenever, I, whenever I want to know the root of things, I usually go back to the garden and see how it got planted. So let's go back there. Let's go back to Genesis. God made a covenant with a guy named Adam. And this guy named Adam was the first man. And God gave him a commandment. And then that commandment, it had a blessing and it had a curse. And Adam represented all of mankind. He was known as the head of the covenant. Now this covenant has been typically called the covenant of works or the covenant of life. And so when he sinned, all his posterity fell with him. This includes the guilt, which can be seen immediately after the fall. Hey, we've got it going here. Next, please. So this is after, right after they sinned and broke the commandment. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, if you've ever been in one of my Sunday school classes or if you're in the college ministry and you come there, you'll hear me talk about fig leaves a lot. Because they're all over the place. A guilty conscience is a heavy weight that cannot be ignored. This is why Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness with the work of their own hands. Notice, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. 
In a similar manner, all who come from Adam seek to silence their guilty conscience with the works of their own hands. I call this fig leaf righteousness. It also goes by the name of self-righteousness. It may come in various shapes, sizes, colors, but its use is the same. A survey of human history reveals numerous fig leaves. Every nation whereby men attempt to cover their nakedness with man-made religions in order to appease their man-made gods. Now, it's, it's pretty easy to appease a god you make, right? He'll do exactly what you want, and you know what happens? You feel pretty good because you're satisfying your god. Fig leaves are also on display in our day by many who have been indoctrinated into the latest woke ideology. They can be seen in public virtue signaling and in the vicious counseling of anyone not wrapped with one of them woke fig leaves. Fig leaf righteousness started in the garden, continues to grow today, and was part of the landscape in Paul's day. In our passage tonight, the spe specific fig leaf the apostle is addressing is the misuse of the Mosaic law. The Jews who rejected the gospel sought to establish their own righteousness by the works of the law. The Judaizers, though, that he's speaking about here in Galatians, they're different. They were corrupting the gospel by adding the works of the law to the gospel in order to be saved. In our passage tonight, Paul corrects this distortion by showing that no one can annul or add to the covenant of grace revealed first in the Abraham covenant, and then he'll compare that to the Mosaic covenant, and finally to the new covenant. All three of those fall under the covenant of grace, but they're used differently. So let's look and let's read Galatians 3.15 through 18. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So the children's catechism defines a covenant as an agreement between two or more persons. I like that definition. Let me give you an example. Suppose a man wanted to build a great house on a very large expanse of land that he owned. And he made a covenant with another man to build it. There would be an agreement with stipulations that would be signed and ratified. The parties would then be bound by the covenant. Neither party is at liberty to annul 
or add to this covenant. Now, if a man's covenant is binding after it is confirmed, how much more so the covenant of the one who is faithful forever and true? For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Therefore, the covenant that God made with Abraham was inviolable and unchangeable. No one is at liberty to annul or to add to it. So let's look at the nature of this Abrahamic covenant. So the, promise, the promises in the Abrahamic covenant were made to Abraham and his seed. We see the initial promise in Genesis 2, 1 through 12. 12, 2 to 3? That's right. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then in Genesis 17, 7, God established his covenant with Abraham and his seed. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your seed after you. Paul points out that the seed is not plural. It's singular. It's known as a collective noun. But it's a singular seed, not a plural. And that seed, Paul says, is Christ. Now, this seed did not originate from Abraham. For the same seed is promised in Genesis immediately after the fall. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus told those who were the children of Abraham according to the flesh... This, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So the ultimate recipient of all the promises in the scriptures is the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are all the promises of God, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20. The promise is not only pointing to Christ, it is given to Christ. It is the eternal Christ who has received the promise of the covenant. And if the Abrahamic covenant is with him, then the promise continues in him, and all who are united to him. So the promise was made to the eternal Son of God. Therefore, what God did at Sinai 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ that it should, be make, that it should make the promise of no effect. So in his original promise, God required nothing of Abraham. God promised to give him all of his blessings. Paul makes this point quite clear. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. 318 of Galatians. If the inheritance comes through our obedience, then it no longer comes by the covenantal promise that God made to Abraham. However, the covenant came to Abraham by a promise. So the covenant was dependent upon God and his promise and is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In other words, in terms of Paul's overarching argument against these Judaizers, justification is an act of God's free grace. Not our works of the law. So no one can annul the Abrahamic covenant or add to it by the works of the law or anything else. It's a covenant of grace. And if you add anything to it, you have fallen from grace. Well, then the question comes up. Why the law? What purpose then is the law? That brings us to 319 through 24. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there could have been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So let's continue with our example. Suppose the man who made the first covenant made another covenant with another man that stipulated rules and instructions for protecting and, pre and preparing the house that was in the process of being built until he came to take possession of it. The previous covenant would not be annulled or changed as long as this covenant did not violate the previous covenant. The house can continue to be built in addition to being protected and prepared for the owner. Now, if the Abrahamic covenant, if in the Abrahamic covenant we are justified by grace through faith in the promised seed, and no one can annul or add to it, what purpose then does the law serve? That's the main objection here. In the Bible, the word law is used in a variety of ways. Let me list a few of them for you. The Gentiles were a law unto themselves. There is the law of sin, the law of, the law of commandments, the law of a fleshly commandment, the law of liberty, the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit, the law of God, etc. There are more. Which law is Paul talking about here? Well, from the context we can see, he's talking about the, mo the, the, the law given by Moses in the Mosaic Covenant. For he says this, and I say that 
the law, which was 430 years later, points you to the Mosaic Covenant. That's 317 in Galatians. So let's look at the nature of this Mosaic Covenant so that we can compare it to the Abrahamic Covenant. Paul tells us that the law was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So what he's emphasizing here in this section is what is known as the pedagogical use of the law. In other words, it was given to guard and tutor Israel. That's what it was given for. Now he makes three points to show this. So let's go through each one of those. First, the giving of the law manifested a righteous God who is at enmity with and separated from transgressors. The giving of the Mosaic Covenant highlighted the differences in the distance the law placed men from God and that of the promise. God gave the promise to Abraham directly. But he gave the law indirectly through the mediation of angels and Moses. You can see this in the book of Hebrews. The author writes about it through the mediation of angels. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Also, Stephen, in his speech, in the book of Acts, he says this. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on the mount. He's speaking about Moses. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles given to us. So the law came to the people third hand. From God, by angels, through Moses, the mediator. To the people. It emphasized the distance of the separation between God and man. At the giving of the law, we also see the inability of transgressors to stand in the presence of a holy God. This is what, what Moses records. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound and the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear but lest, let not God speak with us, lest we die. Is the law then, this, will be, this, will, this brings up the question, since it's, it, it emphasizes the separation, then is it contrary or is it against the promises of God? Certainly not, is Paul's response. The law was given to clearly show man's need for reconciliation, with a holy God. That's the purpose. One of the pedagogical purposes. For where there is a need for a mediator, unity is lacking. The law cannot close the gap between God and man, which is a problem because God is one. Apart from unity with him, there is no life. The Mosaic law made this evident. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So that's the first use, pedagogical use of the law, the Mosaic law. It's to show the distance 
that we are from the God of life, how far separated we are. Let's look at the second one. The Mosaic law magnifies the sinful state of man. The scripture is confined all under sin is what Paul says. In his epistle to the the Romans, he writes these things. Now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And he goes on in, in, in Romans 5 and he says this, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, become made manifest even more. God gave the Mosaic law because he wanted to make his people painfully aware of their bondage to sin and its fatal consequences. The law imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all those who believe. Which brings us to the third point that he makes, that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. The Greek word translated tutor comes from the word which we get the word pedagogue. The King James translated a schoolmaster. In Paul's day, this word referred to a hired person or slave who was supposed to train the children of the family. The schoolmaster also punished the children if they misbehaved. So the Mosaic covenant was like a schoolmaster. It was given to teach Israel their need of Christ. The law was a restraint that God had placed upon them because of the waywardness of their heart and their propensity to fall into idolatry. As Calvin says, man is an idol factory. The law revealed and punished sin, keeping those under the law imprisoned and appointed to the promised seed through its various ceremonies and sacrifices, so that Israel might see Christ in the shadows of it and seek to be justified by faith apart from the law. You see, the law makes clear that sinners cannot be made righteous by keeping the law. That's not what it was given for. The Mosaic law is a covenant of grace given to keep sinners in prison and lead them to Christ. Which brings us to the new covenant. Let's read uh, 325 to 47. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Though he's the master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth his son, the the spirit of his son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, let's finish our example. When the man comes to take possession of his house at the appointed time, the covenant made with the man who was hired to protect and prepare the house has been fulfilled. And his services are no longer in effect. The administration of the Mosaic covenant is no longer in effect with the advent of the new covenant. In the Old Testament, the schoolmaster protected and prepared the people of God through imprisonments and shadows. But now that the Savior and substance of the faith has come, the covenant with the schoolmaster has been fulfilled. The Mosaic covenant highlighted the separation of God and man. In the new covenant, the remedy is realized. We are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. God and man are united in him. Not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who is united to Christ through faith, these are the sons of God and heirs according to the promise. The inheritance of the promise to Abraham and the covenant of grace belong to all who are in Christ. That word in Christ, you'll see that 77 times, depending on what translation you have, in the Bible. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. What that means is to be in union with Christ. And that union is made into effect through the instrument of faith, whereby we come to be united to Jesus Christ. The inheritance of the promise to Abraham in the covenant of grace belong to all who are in Christ. He has broken down the wall of separation that guarded the Jew in the Mosaic covenant. In the new covenant, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. The promised blessings which were given to Abraham belong to all who are united in Christ. Not just the Jew, not just the men, not just the free. All who are in Christ receive the blessings, receive the inheritance. And if you receive the inheritance, what does Christ own? Everything. It's all his. Every bit of it. Now Paul goes on to say, That if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. How are we Abraham's seed? Didn't he just say the seed was singular and it referred to Christ? Well, I I carry some seeds around with me in my pocket. I got an apple seed here. Let me see if I can show you. I don't know. You guys got good eyes? All right, so this is an apple seed. Right here. Now, if you could see this seed with your eyes, right? It's a little, you're a little ways away, 
right? Maybe one of these young guys could see it. Bennett, you could probably see it, right? These, right? If you could see it, you would see one seed here. But if you look beyond what you can see with your eyes, there's an innumerable amount of seeds within this one seed. Known only to God. For if I cast this seed into the ground, this seed will die, but it'll bring forth life in a new tree. And from that tree will come multiple apples, which have what? Multiple seeds within that apple. And every one of those seeds within that apple will be a partaker of this one seed, the nature of this one seed. Abraham was united to the seed, which is Christ, by faith. Everyone who has faith is united to the seed and to Abraham, the father of those who believe in the promise. It says this in Romans 9, 7 to 8. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. While Israel was under the Mosaic covenant, they were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, being guarded and tutored by the schoolmaster with earthly external things. I mean, that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. The earthly shadows is what he calls them, and the ceremonial law. But not only that, even the, even the law was written on tablets of stone, not necessarily on the heart. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So now that Christ has come in the flesh, we are no longer under the law as an administration of the covenant of grace. Christ fulfilled all the requirements of law to earn life for us. For he obeyed all the requirements of law. Do this and you shall live. And Christ did this. And he lived. Testified by what? The resurrection. And not only that, he submitted to the curse of the law, which was upon us. By his death, our propitiatory sacrifice, he satisfied all the demands and the penalties which were against us. And he nailed them to the cross taking them out of the way. So we are no longer under the condemnation of the law been revealed. All who trust in Christ are no longer slaves. Slaves to sin. Slaves to the law. We are adopted sons. And if we are God's sons, we are heirs of the covenant of promises that God made to Abraham, not through the works of the flesh, but through the power of the Spirit. And because we are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. 
So in the new covenant, the promise is now present. The Old Testament, they looked forward to it through shadows. Now it's present. He has come. As I said in 1 John, John says, we have seen him. We have touched him. So let's go back to the garden. And we'll conclude in the garden. It's a good place to end with seeds and, right? And fig leaves and all this stuff. Fig leaf righteousness will silence a guilty conscience by searing it. But it cannot remove guilt or hide it in the presence of God. You can see that, you can see that right here. So as soon as they sowed these fig leaves on, this is the next verse. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. Why did they hide themselves? Didn't they have fig leaves on? From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. For you see, fig leaves avail nothing. For there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What do you use to cover your nakedness? Where do you go when your conscience crushes you? Do you run to your favorite fig leaf? We all got fig leaves. Where do you go? Do you go to Christ? Is that the first place you turn? Do you run to men? Do you go back to Egypt? Where do you go? Only God can cover our nakedness. You'll see this right after the promise of the seed to the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So what you have here contrasted is man in his fig leaf righteousness covering his nakedness. And then you have this, God himself covering their nakedness with his hands, with the skins of an animal. Interesting, isn't it? What you'll find as you trace through the covenants from the this covenant here, the, this is called the Proto-Evangelical. Uh, it's the uh, initial initiation of the, covenant, of the covenant of the grace. Followed by that is the Noetic covenant. You'll find the seed and the sacrifice. Then you go to Abraham, you'll find the seed and the sacrifice. Then you go to Moses, you'll find the seed and the sacrifice. You go to the Davidic covenant, you'll find the seed, you'll find the sacrifice. Then you go to the new covenant, and that's what the book of Hebrews emphasizes, that this, this, this seed and this sacrifices was a once for all sacrifices. There are no more. There is no other way to be justified but Jesus Christ. That's it. And if you add anything else to what he has done, you have fallen from grace. So don't do it. Don't even think about it. Look to Christ when your conscience crushes you, when you fall into sin, when it seems the world is falling down all around. Look to Christ. 
There is no greater freedom than there is in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. And we do pray, Father, that we be not tempted to don our own fig leaves. But Lord, that Christ would be more than enough to satisfy our hungry souls. We do pray in Christ's name. Amen.